It's podcast number 38 at joeettecalibres.com, and here's what we have coming up. I'm Kate, and today I'm excited to share with you a discussion I recently had with Joette and Lara. On this podcast, we discuss the benefits of joining a study group and how a study group can bring about a change in thinking for those people in your life who may be skeptical of homeopathy. We also answer a question that is often asked by many of you. If I'm allergic to a substance, can I take a homeopathic medicine that is made from that substance? And finally, we talk about what to expect when using homeopathy for colds and flus and how to be prepared for when an illness occurs. Now let's get started. It's great to be with you here today. I'm in Wisconsin and you are in Canada, Ontario. right? Ontario. Yeah, I'm in Ontario. And? And Laura, she's joining us today as a special guest. Welcome, Laura. Laura is Joette's course manager. And so, Laura, where are you at? I'm in New York. Thank you, Kate. Well, we're glad that you could be with us today. We're excited to be able to talk homeopathy together. There's so much good stuff that we have for you guys today, and we're excited to share with you. So, Welcome, you guys. Thanks for, thanks for being here. Oh, this is fun. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about study groups and some of the common questions that you guys ask when you're taking a study group. Some of the questions that come up over and over again in the courses and just in general, right, Joette? People write yep. to you with questions. On the blog, sure, they come into the office. Absolutely, yes. Okay, so... Let's get started and let's talk a little bit about study groups in general. And I know that we covered this in podcast number 18. So if you guys want some more information on that, you can go ahead and refer to that podcast and, and review Joette's history about how she started her study group and then how the Gateway to Homeopathy course developed. Yeah, let's talk about it because I'll just tell briefly that the way that I started in homeopathy was to start my own study group back in the 80s. And I gathered a group of friends and we met every Thursday night for four years. It was our ladies night out, essentially, although we didn't really go anywhere. We went to each other's living rooms. And at one point, we brought a teacher in and helped us. She helped us learn. But other times the teacher wasn't available and just we went on on our own. And what it did was a number of things. It built a community, and that's really important. If you've got someone you can count on to ask questions of who may be a little ahead of you, or even if that person's a little behind you in understanding, the value of having other people around you who are think or are of like mind is, um, is paramount. Because uh, when you're stuck at 8 o'clock at night and somebody in your family is really sick with the flu or a cold, and you can't think straight because you're coming down with it as well, isn't it nice to have someone you can contact and say, oh my gosh, so-and-so, can you tell me, what did you use that time that helped your family so much? So there's that. There's also um, your increasing your understanding of cases. And homeopathy is not just understanding the basis of homeopathy, the fundamentals, and then the materia medica, understanding some of the medicines that are used, and also the potencies and frequencies, but it's also understanding case-taking. And how, how soon you give the next dose, how frequently you give it, when you stop, etc. And when you hear case after case after case, which is exactly what would be happening by listening to other people's rendition of their own uh, conditions and their family's conditions, that's when you learn. So I remember when I was in homeopathy school, uh, one of our teachers said, you will never become a homeopath 
truly become a homeopath until you go into practice. And the reason that that was so clearly um, stated and I couldn't agree more was that it's because you've got to see different cases than what you're accustomed to in your own family. You want to see what people who have one child um, suffer. We want to see what people have who have three dogs and what their dogs suffer. Therefore, you t you, what we want to do is get all of those incongruent aspects of homeopathy and pull them all together. And that's what makes homeopathy much more unified so that it starts making sense. So you, you have those aha moments. Oh my gosh, she used pulsatilla for her child's stomach aches. And I use pulsatilla for my child's ear infection. And look at these similarities. That's when we learn. That's when we learn exponentially. It ups our knowledge uh, and, and the pace is really picked up in your understanding of how to use this for your family and self. Right, exactly. And I know that you see a lot of people that take the antibiotic course or the allergic course or the good gut, bad gut course. And then on top of that, they still join a study group because they have that core of a group of people that they can continue that relationship with. And oftentimes those groups go on and they take courses together and continue learning together. And so the study group isn't necessarily, uh, although it's a great first place to plug in and learn, it's not necessarily the only way that you can do this. You can do study groups after you've taken courses. And I see that many times. One other thing I just have to add to this is that if you have a mother-in-law or a sister or a husband who is a skeptic of homeopathy, instead of your trying to convince that person who's important in your life, if they join the study group, even if they just come to one meeting and they hear everyone else talking about it, they're in. More often than not, they hop in. Because now it's a different voice. It's not your voice repetitively um, you know, to your sister, to your husband, over and over and over again. Homeopathy is great. Look how great it is. No, now they hear different voices. And then it starts to come together instead of it just being you. So it's a great opportunity to bring in people who are significant in your life into your world so that you can study and learn together. Or at least if nothing else, they're not an impediment. Because sometimes a husband who doesn't agree can be an impediment. And you want him on board. You want to be at the same place together. That's really critical. I think people join the study groups for a lot of different reasons. And um, there isn't just necessarily one way that you have to do it where you take the study group first and then you graduate onto a course. We've seen people who take the courses first, like Kate mentioned, and then join a study group. And I think a part of human nature is once you have some learning, you get excited about wanting to share that learning. You know, sometimes people take a course and the course is a more individual thing. You know, people do it at their own pace. They kind They're of... Alone. They're yeah, alone. exactly. They're learning maybe, you know, alone in their living room in front of the computer. And then there's a desire to get with a group of people and talk about all the things you learned. And study group is great for that. Yep, exactly. I know last night we were doing a study group together. And one of the people in the study group actually had some friends over to her house. And she said, hey, can they listen in for just a little bit? And they did. And then afterwards, she said, hey, they want to take this, the study group. They want to take Joette's Gateway to Homeopathy. So just that little bit of excitement listening to those people share their stories, their success stories with homeopathy and, and learn just that little bit really excited them about homeopathy. So it's a great way, even if you think you are past that point of learning, it's a great way to step back take that course and just bring some friends into it and take it with them. And now we have lots of questions that come from these study groups. I mean, you're like a study group guru, 
right, Kate? <laughs> I have taught the study group many times, yes. Yeah. And it's every time. I, my students are the same way. They take the courses over and over again. They take the study groups over and over again. And because we're always learning something new from each other and just really reviewing that information, you can never review too much. Joette, I hear these questions so often, and I know you do too. And one of the foundational questions that people ask is, say I'm allergic to poison ivy. Can I still take the homeopathic remedy, Roostox, which is actually made from poison ivy? What do you have to say to those people? Well, there are very few people who aren't allergic to poison ivy. So let's start with that. <laughs> and poison ivy is indeed a poison. And uh, what's lovely about homeopathy is that it is often made from poisons. And the beauty of it is that there's the poison does not remain. What remains is the curative aspect. So by diluting poison ivy um, 200 times, for example, to the hundredth power, which would mean Roostox 200C, what we're doing is eliminating the toxic aspect of the poison ivy by all of those dilutions. This is all pharmacologically uh, done and all regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, uh, parenthetically. And it's a, it's a method of diluting so far that it gets to the point where it, it comes back round again and it becomes curative. And how that happens is by reducing the toxicity and bringing it down by all of this dilution process. It simultaneously reduces the toxicity and brings forth the curative aspect of that plant. Now, all plants, every substance on earth has a curative aspect to it, but sometimes we can't use it in gross form because, of course, you would break out in pustules and itching and restlessness, etc. Just that that's what would happen with poison ivy. But we have found, not, we, not I, this is what Dr. Samuel Hahnemann discovered back in the 1700s and all the, his, his uh, followers after that, that if you dilute a very poisonous substance, that by doing so, you are now bringing forth its curative aspect at a certain point. So what point is that? Well, in homeopathy, we know it's usually a 3X or 3C, 6X, 6C. I don't want to get too deeply into all of this because well, it's really basically a whole course in, in learning how to do this or learning on understanding how this all comes together. But we're diluting it three times to the 10th power, that's 3X, three times to the 100th power, that's 3C, and we keep going up. So it matters not that you are allergic or you respond to Roostox or, for example, Sulfur, because I know that was part of this other, the second part of this question was what if I'm allergic to sulfur, sulfur drugs, etc., antibiotics? That would mean, generally speaking, that sulfur, 30C, 200C, might indeed be the perfect medicine for you because it's been diluted to the point where now it becomes the medicine for those who suffer from such. Exactly. That really helps to clear it up in my mind because I know many people ask that. And even if we don't necessarily have the right answer for it, we know in our minds that it's not going to hurt us, but we don't know how to articulate that. And so thank you for helping us to articulate that to our friends and our family members who might have those concerns. Yeah. And let me also mention this, that in in botanicals, herbalism, the herbalists have a beautiful array of materia medica, lots of medicines from which to choose chamomilla and um, St. John's wort and all of those beautiful medicines that they can use. They can pick them, make them into tinctures, pick them, make them into poultices, etc., and teas and, and, and oils, etc. Beautiful stuff, but they're limited. In homeopathy, we use those same herbs and uh, botanicals but we get to use the poisons and the poisons are actually the 
in my estimation, the most valuable of all the medicines because the poison causes a condition in its gross form, but in the highly diluted, potentized level of homeopathy, diluted 200 times to the 100th power, now we've got a medicine that can uproot what that poison would have caused. It's gorgeous. So we use lead, plumbum. We use arsenic, arsenicum album. We use um, hyoscyamus. We use um, belladonna. Uh, belladonna. We nux vomica. These are all, you know, they basically in their original form, they've strychnine them, etc. So what we're doing with these homeopathic pharmacies, again, regulated by the Food and Drug Administration as medicines, mind you, we are now diluting or they are diluting it down to the point where the toxicity is removed and the curative aspect is brought to the fore. What a brilliant way of using botanicals or of sub toxic substances found on earth and uh, pharmacology and math. It gets the, the essence of many sciences and pulls them into one and makes them into the medicine of choice. And it's gentle, right? Yes, because it's so highly diluted. There's there's so little left that sometimes, you know, it's even questioned whether or not there's anything left. The point is, there's just enough to be able to gently, efficaciously stimulate the body's ability to do this. This is what homeopathy does. Bring the person back to wholeness. How does it do that? It stimulates that natural ability that we know the body has the ability, for the most part, to be able to do. Well, thank you for clearing that up for us. What are the other questions, Joette, that comes up? And I know that Right now, we are in the throes of cold and flu season. And so can you give us some ideas of some realistic expectations when we are using the remedies that, for instance, we learned in our study groups or in the courses to treat the um, cold and flu viruses? What are some expectations that we can have as far as how quickly these remedies are going to act and, and how quickly we're going to see results? I've seen the whole gamut. And, but as I fine-tune my knowledge in homeopathy, and I've been using homeopathy for over 30 years, um, I'm still always learning another um, homeopathic medicine that could be even tighter than the last one. I find that if you get the right medicine, it can be uh, jaw-dropping. It's so fast. Often people tell me, oh my gosh, I just took, you know, I, I felt really sick. I felt like I was coming down with bronchitis and I know that feeling because I've had it in the past, but I took that aconitum and bryonia and my gosh, I'm going to say two hours, I could feel my energy come back again. So sometimes we see that. Other times we see that it lingers for a while and the reason it's lingering in my estimation, is you just haven't gotten the right medicine. Because when you get the right medicine, especially for an acute, remember, this is an acute we're talking, this is not a chronic illness, for an acute, generally speaking, we see a turnaround within a few hours or a day or two. Now, if it's been established and the illness has gone for a while and we see relentless vomiting, for example, my son just had a terrible stomach flu. He started out in the morning, he was pretty uncomfortable, a lot of nausea and vomiting about, for about an hour. And he never contacted me, thought he figured he could do it himself. And he actually did do it himself. The, the vomiting stopped after taking the fourth dose of the medicine, which was great. He actually used Ipecac. Um, and then the nausea persisted a little bit longer. Now it was about two in the afternoon and this all started early in the morning. He still had nausea. He couldn't eat. He didn't feel well. He still, you know, he couldn't talk for very long because the nausea persisted and he kept taking it every 
I think he was taking it about every three hours or so. And after, um, by about five o'clock that night, he was able to eat. Now, is that the right amount of time? I think it's perfect, to be honest. If you can miss one day of school or one day of work for a stomach flu when you see your friends and um, neighbors, etc., going on for three and four days, and then when they're finished, they still are not 100%, I would say that's pretty darn good use of medicine. The following day, I followed up, followed up and I texted him, how are you doing today? He says, I'm fine, I'm back at school. That's what we're talking about. That's the way we want it to go. Now, had he chosen the wrong medicine, even the quote, uh, wrong, unquote, medicine, you can still do a lot of good, a lot of good, because even if you choose the wrong one, it's going to, by choosing the wrong medicine, the symptoms that you need to really pay attention to will come to the fore. So if he had taken the wrong medicine, and it's now he started to get diarrhea or pain in the stomach, now we have to look at a medicine that's specific for diarrhea and pain in a flu, stomach flu, for example. That will give us more hints. Um, isn't it also possible that different medicines can um, work to a different extent? Um, yes, but I have to caution folks to, and, unless you have something in mind, Lara, I, I, I don't have anything in mind like that, but we have to caution folks into, into thinking that the medicine can only do so much when really if we have the right medicine, it will do plenty. My understanding is that, for example, like with the Banerjee protocols, sometimes there will be several um, medicines given. And sometimes with a disease, there might be the perfect remedy, which will do everything, but another remedy might do a lot, even if it's not the perfect choice. I'm trying to think of a specific example. Okay, well, I think I know what you're saying. And here's my baseline answer. We have 6,000 homeopathic medicines from which to choose. Which one is it? And so the Banerjees have graciously given me their information, which all makes sense anyway, because that's because their medicines make so much sense, even if, you, if you're using classical homeopathy. But it doesn't mean it's going to work for absolutely everyone. But if you, I use the Banerjee protocols, perhaps, or I use an old protocol that I've used in the past, or I might use cell salts, or I might use, there are so many ways to skin a cat that you're looking at many options. And I don't want people to get too confused and think that there's only one way to do it. There is one good way to do it. And when I'm teaching Banerjee protocols, then by all means, I'm going to urge you, especially as a new student, to start out with that, if at all possible. If you can start with that and then test it out and see if it doesn't act, then we go onward. I guess I have a, um, an example. Let's say it's a UTI. And somebody's using um, cantharis or um, sarsaparilla, is that how you pronounce it? Sarsaparilla. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes care of, of the UTI pretty well, but it comes back again. Mm -hmm. And um, the next time they start with cantharis and it's, it's working, but it's not working great. And they introduce medorinum and all of a sudden that's it. You oh, know, beautiful. so. Yes. Yeah. So what that means is that you could have started out with probably started out with metarinum in the first place, mm -hmm. as well as cantharis or sarsaparilla and metarinum or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we've got lots of possibilities here, but I try to give those possibilities that are the most commonly used as our first line of defense. But yes, you're right. You're right. So can you give us some ideas as far as dosage, because I know your son, you said took Ipecac, for instance. Do you think he took Ipecac 30C or? Yes, he used Ipecac 30C because I, I have taught him that I think that Ipecac 30C is a very good medicine for um, uh, nausea. 
And then he also was taking Nuxvamica. Um, I didn't tell him to do that, but because he was vomiting. And I believe that probably the Nuxvamica, now that I think back on it, was probably what stopped the vomiting and Ipecac helped with the chronic relentless nausea. Okay. So he was using both. And he used Nuxvamica in a 200 and Ipecac in a 30. And he was alternating them approximately every couple of hours. I actually think he could have in the beginning when it was really um, a, di a difficult uh, couple of hours, he could have taken them e each one every 15 minutes if it was very severe. Right. Joette, do you want to know an interesting fact? Sure. Our kids, they haven't had the stomach flu in... I think over six years and <laughs> I give homeopathy and God, of course, the credit for that because before homeopathy about once a year, they would come down with the stomach flu because as it goes around, you know, the season usually brings on those viruses. And so isn't that an amazing thing? Yes, it is amazing because it does go around like wildfire. It's almost impossible not to get these kinds of things unless you're doing something rather active. Exactly. And that's a Joette, that's a testament to what you talk about, how um, homeopathy has the ability to so deeply uproot something that it doesn't come back. Yes, so that if my son, for example, let's go back to that, he got the stomach flu um, and he had this nausea and vomiting. And if it goes around again this year or in the spring or next year, now he's girded. He's held up by the fact that the remedy back now in, this, in October 2017 has corrected the condition to a certain degree. Now, does it mean it's going to protect him forever and ever? Sometimes, yes. Um, and sometimes no, but if it doesn't, then the next time he gets it, it's very likely it'll be a milder version, meaning it won't be as intense. It might even uh, finish off a little bit sooner while using Ipecac 30 and Nuxvamica 200. Right. So we have your son's example, a recent example of when he had the stomach flu. And then six months ago, one of my kids woke me up in the middle of the night saying that they were not feeling well. They, they felt nauseous, maybe a little bit, bit of a tummy ache. And I gave them Arsenicum album 200C and just one dose of that. And within an hour, I would say hour and a half, they were feeling better and they went back to sleep. But before homeopathy, the BH days, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. um, you know, I can see that that stomach ache, your kid waking you up in the middle of the night with a stomach ache usually is going to end up in some diarrhea or throwing up or something. I mean, it and just, you're up the rest of the night into the morning with that child. Now the child misses school the next day and any other commitments you or the child may have. Exactly. Right. And you're exhausted. The family's exhausted. Then it, and then it goes on to the other family members. And so really, you're not just talking a day, even you're talking about a week or more. That's so, right. Yeah. I, feel yeah, like, I remember um, when I was sick. I'm sorry, Laura. I do want you to get in here because I want your opinion on this too. But when I was sick, when I was a little girl, I remember never being sick for anything less than two weeks. Anytime I got a cold, anytime I got a fever, sore throat, ear infection, that was back in the 50s, two weeks. I, that was just the way it was. We just expected it. I feel like um, mothers are like farmers in this sense. You know how they say, Joette that, and Kate, that farmers are kind of like they're the, the um, ground zero or the front line when it comes to things like nutrition and, and vitamins and stuff because they've all, they're always thinking about the bottom line. They're thinking about what do I need to keep my you know, cows healthy enough that they will reproduce successfully and that they will give enough milk so I make a profit you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, so doctors, I think human doctors get away with a lot. The farmers don't get away with because 
they're, they always have to find practically what is working. And I was thinking about that when you and Kate were talking about kids, because I think mothers are like that too. Like practically, you can tell what makes a difference in terms of how many times the kids are getting sick, how long they're getting sick for, how severe the illnesses are for. And you see the repercussions when things don't work because they're missing more school, you're getting less sleep as a family, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so that you know you're heard. <laughs> yeah, and um, basically, you know exactly what how your child normally reacts, and now how your child reacts when you give the homeopathic medicines. And it ties into what you're saying about how you know mothers and grandmothers—they're the ones who really know. I mean, like we can depend on our scientists and our doctors for a lot, but the bottom line is who's observing that child and that family day to day. Mothers know there's nothing like the watchful eye of a mother. And I don't mean necessarily even has to be a mother with a human child. It can be a woman or even a man, but more often than it's a woman who's, who's raising puppies or who has uh, animals that they're raising on the, on the fields and lamb and, sh and cows, etc. When you are in charge, when you have a charge over another living being, you pay attention and you pay attention closely. It becomes your focus. And for a mother to have this focus, it's just natural. So I don't want to give people a wrong impression either about how easy it is. Um, yes. Because yes, I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> you know, sometimes it is hard. And, and I gave that great example of my, my child with the stomach ache and how quickly it went away. But there have been times, Joette, and I know mothers can relate, when my kid has a cough and a cold, and it is days, and we are struggling, and they are coughing, and granted, I think they're not as, it's not as severe as it would have been without homeopathy, for sure, and there is relief, whereas without homeopathy, I, I didn't see the relief, where now you can give some homeopathic remedies to help the cough, and even though they still have the cold for three or four days, the cold isn't as severe and the cough isn't, you know, you can go for hours without that bothersome cough and then they need the remedy again. So talk a little bit about when it doesn't act that quickly. Well, when it doesn't act that quickly, you need to reassess what you're given. And I always say four doses, up to about four doses, and about four hours apart. Now, that is a very basic structure, a skeletal stru structure. If someone is, again, vomiting relentlessly, you're not going to wait four hours to give the medicine. You're going to wait maybe 15 minutes, but you know you're not going to wait a week. So that I'm trying to give a basic structure of how often to use it. And four hours is kind of, you can go every, you know, 15 minutes if it's very severe. If it's not so severe, then maybe every two hours. If it's really rather mild, you might use it every four hours. And so when you see that after about four doses and it's very severe and you've given that medicine every 15 minutes or every hour, et cetera, and you've given four doses and you see no change whatsoever. Now, that's the key. And I will, we'll let, we should talk about what change means. But if you see no change at, after, at all after about four doses, maybe five, I mean, again, that's just a benchmark then it's time to reassess and stop what you're using and now look at what's presenting now. So if the child is or the person is vomiting relentlessly and they stop vomiting, but now they're coughing, are you going to give that vomiting medicine? You're going to give that that's for the, the uh, gastrointestinal condition? If the primary concern now is a cough, no. Now you have to go to a cough a medicine that is specific for the cough. Have you lost it? Have you lost the case by doing this? No, the case is evolving. And it's very likely 
that had you not given the homeopathic medicine, this would start out with vomiting and nausea and turn into coughing, but you're shortening that duration. So you're always looking to see what is happening now. What am I observing now? And so when we look at, for example, is this person improving? If the person stops vomiting, or let's say they, they continue vomiting, and they're very nauseous, yet now they're smiling. And now they're not freezing anymore. And now they're not frightened anymore. That's some improvement. Because if the person, even it's, it's your husband, who's freezing cold, he's vomiting horribly, you can see that he's panicking, he's feeling really uncomfortable, really sick, and he continues to vomit, but his demeanor changes and it becomes more positive, you better stay with that medicine because you're doing some good. That's how you know. The vomiting may still continue, but you're looking for the overall wellness of the person. Or here's another great indicator. The person falls asleep. Here you are on the bathroom floor with your loved one, and they're vomiting, and suddenly they fall asleep. Beautiful. Cover them up. Keep them warm. Have a hot water bottle close by. Make sure they're really comfortable. Clean up the bathroom as best you can, and let them sleep. Now, if they wake up and it comes back again, most parents don't realize that what has happened was positive, and it meant that the medicine was acting. And they're thinking, oh, no, it's back again. They just got a little respite. They lucked out. No, 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 no. This means the medicine is working. Sleep for a situation like this indicates that the medicine is correct. Now, what do you do? They start vomiting again. You reintroduce it. You give it again. It needs another stimulus. And you start again. It's so important to look at the big picture, you know, like yeah. you're saying, Joette, because, um, you know, if somebody says, if it, somebody brags, I never, I never get a cold, but they're constantly tired, you know, they're weak, they don't have the energy to do stuff. Well, maybe you're not getting a cold because your, your immune system doesn't have the strength to ward off infection. Or, you know, it's like when um, people talk about fevers, you know, it's very important to have the um, vitality to actually mount a fever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a weak person who never gets a fever because their body isn't capable. Yes. So symptoms, symptoms can be good. They can be a sign that the body's functioning well. You bet. And also, sometimes the more virulent the response, like you said with the fever, if they can mount a fever, that's a very positive, when it's a child. Now, adults is a little different, but children are supposed to get fevers when they get sick. If they can do that, then you're going in the right direction. And if the remedy, you know, if they still have, say, a runny nose, you know, and a sneeze, but they feel more energy, they feel happier, what's that a sign of? It's a sign of improvement Mm -hmm. because there's nothing wrong with having a runny nose because you're clearing out the mucosa or the cough remains, but it's not a gagging or croupy cough. Now it's a clearing cough. It's liquidy. Good. That's very good. But that child now can go back to school. The child is sleeping properly. He can start drinking his bone stock. He can start having his kefir or whatever else he's eating or drinking. Yet he still has a cough that's clearing out his chest. Keep him low. You always want to keep people low, children low when they've had a respiratory Uh, infection, especially in the chest. But that cough that's still clearing out even days, even a week later, as long as the vitality is good and the cough is liquidy and not keeping the child from from living his life, such as sleeping and eating, etc., then we're moving in the right direction. That's what I look for. My daughter tends to get coughs frequently. And so it's beautiful when I know I'm in the right direction just like you said, when she actually perks up and now she wants to interact with us or she's smiling and she gets up out of bed and she's walking around and wanting to do things. And so that to me is a sign that yes, the remedy is working. She's still coughing, like you said, and it may be a while, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. And as long as her vitality is 
going in the right direction and it's positive, then that's okay, right? Yep. And you have to assess. You have to know when to fold. You have to know when to say, okay, this is bigger than me. I need to get to a doctor. There is that aspect of this as well, because we don't want somebody to get pneumonia because you thought you could handle it until you are, feel really, really confident with homeopathy. I'm going to encourage you to always be on the fence just in case. Let's see how far I can go with this. Let's see what I can do. And if you can cure your family member, your husband, your child of something that's an impending lung infection before it gets that bad, you've really got a handle on your life. You've really got some reins to hold. It's a beautiful thing. There's nothing more heady than being able to cure someone you love. Can you think, I mean, I can't think of anything better. Curing right. someone you love, holy cow, that's amazing. <laughs> It is. It's, it's such a great feeling. And Joette, you often say too, you recommend to people drive to the hospital, sit in the parking lot, get some blankets and some games or whatever, some snacks and sit there if you're not confident and just wait, you know, give the homeopathic medicines and just see what unfolds. And that way you're close. You're there if you need to be there. You're even closer than sometimes being in the hospital and getting into the emergency room, you know, being in a, on like the seventh floor of the gastroenterology department or something, and then you need emergency care. By the time they get a gurney and bring you back down all the way to the emergency room, you know, who knows how long that'll be. But you're right there. You have your legs and your child, and you could carry your child or walk in with your husband if you need be. So I think that um, all um, emergency room parking lots should have, you know, like um, big screen TVs and, you know, like a <laughs> <laughs> you know, like uh, an outdoor show or something and popcorn, you know, <laughs> and some, some bone stock sold on the side. And <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've talked about quite a, a number of things. And if I'm still stuck and I'm needing to figure out a better method of helping my kids and learn more remedies and how, how to help them get through those colds and flus. What do you recommend, Joette? What's, what would be a next step for people? Well, here's the thing. Put together what makes the most sense for you and your family. If your finances are limited, then you might want to go with the study group, which is Gateway to Homeopathy. It's very, I think it's under $60 and it's several classes together with, with these other folks. Um, if, you, if you want to jump into a bigger course, then by all means, how to raise a drug-free family is a great way to go. But I don't believe that it has to be that way. If you're new to homeopathy, or even if you're not, use my blog. It's totally, completely free. And I've been authoring this blog with my homeopathy tips and methods for 10 years. Every single week we put out information and often we put out information twice a week. And it, the whole idea of this blog is for you to be able to utilize this for your family at no cost whatsoever. But I do urge you to get a kit, a homeopathy kit, or at least if you have a Whole Foods nearby or a health food store, and even Walmart carries homeopathy, even Walgreens carries homeopathy, make sure you know where these remedies are so that you don't get stuck at, say, 10 o'clock at night and say, oh, I know exactly what to give, and then you don't own it. So own as many homeopathic medicines as you can and get started that way. That is key, I think, is to have the tools because you can have the knowledge and you don't have the tools and then you're stuck. I say to my students all the time, there is so much information that Johette has available on her blogs and her podcasts. Dig into that, dive into it, learn as much as you can and be prepared for when those things occur. Don't wait until your kid has a cold or a stomach flu to learn these things. 
Well, I just want to add, I'm not the only one out there. There are a lot of homeopaths with lots of great information. So don't think that it's just me. I just, I give protocols to make it super easy, but there are lots of great homeopaths out there. So don't just read me, read lots and lots and lots of other ways to approach this as well. But right. even if they just do read your blog, Joette, I think that's like a course in and of itself. All those different articles spanning such a long time have so much information. Yep, that's what I hope to present to the world. Yeah. Right. Your mission is what, Joette? 100,000 homes by 2020. Reaching 100,000 homes. So that each of these homes has got homeopathy as the mainstay of their medicine, or at least uh, simultaneous. And all of your listeners, we're a part of that, right? We're a team. You bet. You bet. It's <laughs> great. It's great. Let's get this out, everyone. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation today. Lara, thanks for joining us. It was really Thank great you. to be able to talk to you guys today and to discuss some of these things that weigh heavily on our listeners' minds. You just listened to a podcast by joettecalabrese.com. We're nationally certified homeopath, public speaker, and author Joette Calabrese shared her passion for helping families stay strong through homeopathy and nutrient-dense nutrition. Joette's podcasts are available on iTunes, Google Play, Blueberry, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Thank you for listening to this podcast with Joette Calabrese. If you liked it, please share it with your friends. To learn more and find out if homeopathy is a good fit in your health strategy, visit joettecalabrese.com.